0: your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We're going to be looking at at verses 1 through 20. So there's uh, there's a lot here to cover, but there's really you really, I think you have to deal with it all at once. Um, It means that we, it's not like it's not like other passages where uh, every verse needs to be commented on it's a parable and uh, what I'd like to do first is um, is kind of introduce the the parables and and see kind of what mark is doing uh, in the book as a whole but uh, but let's let's pray and then we'll read read mark uh, mark 4 and then we'll read I'm reading from the New King James I've I uh, didn't have the ESV this morning, so it'll be, it'll be very close. The ESV messes it up anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, so let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for uh, this day, this time. We are truly grateful for your word. We pray that you would be in our midst today, be with me as I seek to uh, open up the word of God. And we pray that uh, you, you would be uh, among us in our congregation. Uh, at work as the spirit that binds us all together. We pray, Father, that uh, you'd have your way today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, Mark chapter 4 is going to divide into three, uh, 4, 1 through 20, is going to divide into three, three parts. We will have 1 through 9, which is the parable itself, and then 10 through uh, 10 through 13 is a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And then 13 through 20 is, the, uh, is somewhat of an interpretation of the parable itself. But, he, but the interpretation is not, it's not real clear either. Uh, but we're going to look at it and, and try to draw out what I think is, is going on here. Um, at the beginning of, of the Gospel of Mark, uh, remember that he quoted, from, he quoted from Isaiah 40 and he quoted from Malachi. And in doing so, he basically said, this is the time when Israel is to come out of exile. Israel has been in exile in Babylon for a long time. They've come back to the land of Israel, but they're not out of exile. And this is a real problem for, for, the, Israel, uh, for the Jews in the first century. How, so we're back in the land, but yet we're under the thumb of Rome we haven't truly come out of exile because the promises were that, that God would send his Davidic son or God would send his Davidic king, let's say. They weren't looking for the son. But uh, they would, he would send his Davidic king and he would conquer the nations and he would run the, run the Romans out or whoever was over them and he would establish the kingdom of God. Mark says that this is happening, that the time for Israel to return from exile is now. Israel's God is returning to, as king to rule over Israel, and Israel's God is returning to the temple to dwell with his people. This is the message at the beginning of Mark, and if we, we, have, to, we have to always keep that in mind, otherwise we'll lose track of, of where Mark is going with all these little stories. Much has happened between chapters 1 and, and chapter, chapter 4 here, when he begins to speak in parables. And the things that have unfolded can easily draw our attention away from the overarching flow of the the story that Mark is telling. Now, I'd like to suggest that that pretty much everything in between what we've seen in chapter 1 and coming up to chapter 4 should be seen as signs. Signs that, that what Mark said at the beginning of his gospel, by quoting Isaiah and Malachi, is coming to pass. Everything is coming to pass and the, the deeds that Jesus has been doing are actually signs pointing to this fact that indeed God is bringing in the new age and he is rescuing Israel from exile. And the fact that Mark has hinted at, at this coming to pass is the primary meaning of the text. Now we, we, can, look at, we can look at all of these little stories and we can think Okay, there's, uh, there's a meaning in this, the casting out of demons. Uh, that may mean that you have a demon that you need casting out. That's not the point. That is not the point, and that's not the point that, that if we read the text that way, we actually run into problems because we'll go around looking for demons to, to uh, exercise, right, to get out of people. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that the demons are coming out, because Jesus has arrived on the scene and he is going to bind that strong man and he's going to overrun the kingdom of the satan. Okay? So that's the point. If we if we focus on these little stories as having meaning outside of the larger story, then we we uh, can tend to get carried away and and start becoming we'll just go down to the local Pentecostal's church and start uh, jumping pews and things, okay? So we, we must focus on how these things fit within, how they fit within this narrative. Very important, because the cumulative effect of of these stories is that what God has promised all along, he is now faithful to bring to pass, and he is doing it in, in Jesus the Messiah. In other words, things like forgiving sins, healing the lame, uh, Putting a pause on on this time of fasting, because now the Messianic banquet is at hand, Sabbath healings, a new way to think about Sabbath, all of these things have a cumulative effect to say that Israel's long exile is now coming to an end, and the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The kingdom of God. God has now come to rule. That is the point of, of these texts. The Messiah, which at the beginning of this gospel is defined as God's son, has arrived and is inaugurating the kingdom of God and bringing God's new Israel out of exile. And I did say God's new Israel. We note within chapter 3 that he has just gone up into a mountain and he has appointed 12. He has done this symbolically because he is getting together his new Israel and he's bringing them out of, he's, he's beginning a new exodus bringing them out of of slavery, the slavery of sin. But what happens when some who hear of this good news are not pleased about the message? They're not pleased that these miracles are pointing to the inauguration of the new age, the kingdom of God. What happens? As Pastor Ryan mentioned last week, this hardness of heart issue is going to bring on the parables. At the beginning of chapter 3 in verses 4 and 5 Mark says that Jesus is in the synagogue and there's this man with a withered hand and he asks, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? Nobody answers him. He looks around with anger being grieved at their hardness of heart and he restores the withered hand of the man on the Sabbath. Now Jesus is saying by doing this that the new Sabbath rest has come that was anticipated in the initial Sabbath of God and people are being made whole again. The original work of creation that ended in God's Sabbath on the seventh day was foreshadowing a new creation that would be inaugurated by a new Adam, the Son of God. And this was now coming coming about. Now, as we read Mark, we must, make, we must avoid the mistake of reading these incidents as simply isolated incidents that have been cobbled together uh, to, and thrown into a book. They are not isolated. We must seek to discern a strategy in the authors putting these things in this unified story because that's what he's doing. So how do we do that here? In Mark 3, 4 and 5, Jesus has explicitly mentioned that the people in the synagogue had hardness of heart and I was looking at that and and it actually you have the Pharisees there but it's the people in general it mentions the people themselves uh, that are gathered in the synagogue and they refuse to answer whether it's good to do uh, good to do good on the Sabbath or uh, or not and he says you have hardness of heart and he's angry about it this is very serious this, then, is followed by the Pharisees going out, joining with the Herodians. And who are the Herodians? King Herod, right? We know of King Herod. He is the royal family ruling over the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. So the Pharisees get into league with the Herodians, and they're going to overthrow the Messiah. Remember Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2. Because exactly what's happening in Psalm 2 is happening here. The Pharisees, the the kings of the earth, are joining together against the Lord and his anointed one. And so Jesus is living Psalm 2. He has explicitly said that they have hardness of heart, and they are gathering together so that they might destroy him. That's what he says in verse 6. He then goes up into a mountain as one who is plotting to bring about the kingdom of God might do. And he calls together and appoints 12 apostles to be with him and to send them out to preach and to cast out demons. This is clearly a new kingdom of God movement, a time when the new Israel will be formed and go out of Egypt to conquer the land, so to speak. Soon after, we have the scribes arriving from Jerusalem. Very important little note. They begin saying, this guy is possessed by Beelzebul, and they commit the sin that will lead to their judgment, attributing the work of the Spirit of God to the work of Satan. It is here in the narrative that Mark says that Jesus began to speak in parables. It is here that he first begins to speak about the kingdoms clashing. It is here in chapter 3 where he appoints the 12 apostles, and it is here that the great exodus of, out of Egypt, out of exile, is now beginning for the new Israel. Now, it's not that, that all these things that we've been looking at up until this point lacked any meaning in themselves. They, they have meaning. But this meaning is, has to be brought into alignment with the way in which Mark is telling the story. And they are pointing to the fact that the kingdom of God and all these things that they see happening around them through the hands of the Messiah means that the kingdom of God is now upon them. This has been his message all along. If we remember chapter 1, verse 15, he, said, he's come, he comes preaching the kingdom, saying the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. This is his message, that God has come to be king. Now, think, step back and think about the whole story of Mark. We've read it. We've read it. It may have been a while ago since you've read it, but think about the whole story. If God is becoming king, how is he going to do it? If Jesus the Messiah is going to be enthroned, how is this going to happen? So this is what what Mark, this is what all the gospel writers are inviting us to consider. Consider how it is that the kingdom of God is going to come out of this gospel story. Because in a strange way, this is the gospel. Now, you know if you look at the end of all of the gospels, what happens to Jesus? He's crucified, right? He's resurrected, but he's crucified. And this is the strange working of God, that the Son of God would be crucified in order to bring in the kingdom of God. What a strange message. What a strange message. But that's the message of the gospels. Mark has described his message as the good news of the kingdom of God. But it's easy to forget the coming of the kingdom of God is the point of all of these things that seemingly are disconnected. Now, Jesus' kingdom, we've seen in, uh, in, in the run-up to chapter 4 that, uh, that Jesus has basically said, My kingdom is not divided. Right? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it will fall. And then he talks about going in and binding the strong man. Uh, this is exactly what he has done. He's done this in his temptation uh, in the wilderness. He's bound the strong man. Now he's going, to, uh, he's going to pillage his house. He's saying that now the kingdom of God is coming in, in but now there is a, there is a, a change within the narrative something happens that he begins speaking parables. Okay? The story is meant to reflect the story of the Exodus. Now, I sent, I sent out a text the other day about, uh, about uh, the Pharisees and, and everybody, being, everybody who's rejecting Jesus essentially being the Pharaoh and his people. And that's exactly what is happening. I want to show you how, how I think that's being, uh, being presented here. In in Luke's Luke's discussion of the strong man and going into the strong man's house and binding the strong man and then uh, pillaging his house, Luke says that he is doing this by the finger of God. And he says, he adds this little note, he says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Note the association here. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying that the casting out of demons mean, by the spirit of God, by the finger of God, means that the kingdom has come. This indicates that the purpose of the casting out of demons was to demonstrate the rule of God had come. And it was somehow uh, to defeat the kingdom of the strong man, the accuser, the Satan. Now, this allusion in Luke, To the finger of God. In this exact same incident, this is one of the few things that Luke adds to the story, but he adds this little note in order to associate it with Exodus more explicitly. In Exodus 8.19, I don't have to turn there, uh, but in 8.19, Pharaoh, after witnessing the signs of Moses and Aaron, hardens his heart. We're all familiar with this story about about, uh, Pharaoh hardening his heart and then God hardening his heart. What's going on in, in this story? In Luke 11, tw- uh, 20, he points to this as an allusion to say the same thing is happening among Israel. The Pharisees, the, uh, the scribes, they are hardening their heart like Pharaoh. And he does this with the allusion to the finger of God. Now, think about what is going on in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. What's this story about? What, what is God about to do? When, when he sends Aaron and Moses uh, to Pharaoh, what's he about to do? He's about to begin a new exodus. Okay? He's about to bring them out of the kingdom of Egypt, and he's going to become king, as Exodus 15 says, over all the earth. He's exercising his authority as king, and he's going to bring his people out of slavery and out of the kingdom of sin. In this passage, Pharaoh, after witnessing the sign of Aaron, hardens his heart. Pharaoh's magicians say this is the finger of God. They cannot replicate this divine act. And they say this is the finger of God. What does Pharaoh do? <coughs> it says he hardened his heart. Then in the next chapter, the rejection of of the sign that Aaron performed is then confirmed by God hardening the heart of Pharaoh, okay? This is the ordering of it. There's a rejection of the message that that Aaron and Moses are bringing, and that is God is going to rescue his people from your kingdom. The Pharaoh rejects it by hardening his heart, and God puts his stamp of approval on it and hardens his heart. This is exactly what's going on in our own story the same thing roughly happens here the scribes and perhaps the pharisees earlier in chapter 3 are like pharaoh in that they are preventing god's israel from coming out of exile and slavery this is very important this is this is something that is that is if you if you miss the references you miss kind of the foundation of the story and some might say well this is not important but It's very important. The reason that it is important is that if you don't have this background of the story, the faithfulness of God means nothing. The faithfulness of God to his promises means nothing. If if we view the faithfulness of God simply as, oh, he's with me every day, that's not the way the Bible defines the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is God's faithfulness to keep his promises. And the promise was that that God, after sending his people into exile, would then bring them out of exile. And this is now coming to pass in the Messiah. And what what the Pharisees and scribes do will bring a hardening of their hearts. And this brings us to the parables. The means by which God is going to harden their hearts is parables. That's why when we look at when we look at one through four, there are no parables before this. There's a brief one in chapter three as an introduction to this kingdom message. But he makes explicit he makes explicit here in chapter four that he didn't speak to them in any other way except through parables. From this point on, why is this? He's hardening their hearts. And he says as much in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He said to them, so in, in verse 10, but when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him, asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are on the outside, all things come in parables. Why? So that, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Now that's interesting. You would think that God would want everyone to hear, right? That Jesus would say, we want to make this as clear as possible, guys. Can you go show them chapter and verse exactly what's going on? But that's not what he says. He says, I'm speaking to them in parables because they've hardened their hearts. I'm going to harden their hearts so that they don't see even though they're seeing with their eyes and they don't hear even though they're hearing with their ears. Lest they should turn and have their sins forgiven. They can't. They've been sealed, right? Why? They've committed the unpardonable sin. They have attributed the work of the Messiah, which is done by the finger of God, to Satan. And this is the rationale for the parable. This is a quotation from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah had been given the same role as the hardener of Israel. His job was to make Israel ripe for judgment. After, that, after he is given this, this quote from Isaiah 6, he says, how long should I do this, Lord? And the Lord says, until cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, lest she turn and be forgiven. Isaiah is given the same role. And Mark says that Jesus is doing the same thing as Isaiah. Now, what's interesting about this whole thing, though, is that there are two things going on simultaneously. We often think of, well, it's either God is bringing judgment or God is saving. But the the two happen together. This is what's going on in Isaiah. God is delivering his remnant through all of this. And the same thing is happening here in the Gospels. God is delivering his people but he's bringing judgment on the rest. And these two things happen simultaneously. Have a look at the end of chapter six of Isaiah sometime. He says, there's a stump that's going to remain after this burning. God's gonna come and burn this place. And uh, what the picture is of an invasion that's going to happen, we know that's exactly what happened. The invasion, uh, the invading armies came in and they pillaged the north and they burned it with fire. And then later, um, before the second half of Isaiah, they came in and did the same with the temple, uh, with Solomon's temple, and, and raised it to the ground, burned the place with fire, and, and really uh, turned it into a, a wasteland. He says, at the end of this burning, there will be another burning, and then there will be a stump. And he says, the holy seed is the stump. Okay. Now, Keep that in mind as we're reading this story because this is not the only allusion to, uh, this this quotation from Isaiah 6 is not the only allusion to Isaiah. Think about what he is doing in this passage. We're going to read it in just a moment. But the sower is sowing seed. These things should echo very loudly when we, uh, especially with this quotation from Isaiah 6. Okay. Now, we should set aside the notion that parables are primarily for understanding. They are not. They are for hiding things in cryptic sayings. They fall broadly within the genre of apocalyptic literature, where a world of symbols point point cryptically to things in this world and things that will come to pass within it. In other words, these symbols are a way to to invest meaning into the things that are happening in the world through symbols. The symbols are we should not so if, if in, in the sto- in the apocalyptic story is talking about animals, we should not think we should we could go do a, a science project on animals right because they're not it, the animals are not the point. They are standing for and they are symbolic of certain things within the within the world. Now, I suggest that our passage in Mark 4 also follows falls within the genre of apocalyptic. We must gain a bit of competence in reading that reading it, uh, to see what he is getting at. First, apocalyptic stories typically have a secret or a mystery to which a special person, one person, or a group of people is privy. Okay, so there's a secret that only God is going to be able to reveal and he's going to reveal it to one person or to a group of people. The secret is unveiled in cryptic language, whether it's talking of beasts like Daniel 7 or of an image made out of different materials in Daniel 2. In Daniel we have a, a more pure apocalyptic type literature with a secret and a cryptic story revealed to Daniel as the one who is on the inside. This is very important. I've just read in, ch- in chapter four here, to those who are on the outside, they don't get the interpretation. But the ones on the inside, they're going to get the interpretation. This is how it happens in Daniel as well. Those on the outside in Daniel are the, the court magicians. They're the Chaldeans. They're blind to this. Now, let's look briefly at Daniel 2. I know it's a long way around to get to, to Mark chapter 4, but I think it's important because we, it gives us a, a certain competence in reading, reading these stories as apocalyptic, and it's exactly what they are. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 2, has a dream. He calls on the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans is just a it's, it's like another way of saying all of his court magicians. They're the wise men of, of Babylon, and actually Daniel and his three friends are among them. They're like they're wise men, but they're also counselors. They they serve a function within the within the kingdom. So he calls on the Chaldeans and he says, um, "Tell me the dream and the interpretation that I dreamed last night." And they say, "You tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation." All right? He says, "No, you tell me the dream and the interpretation because." He knows that any wise guy can come up with an interpretation if he has the dream. Well, they can't, and so he gives them a short time before destroying them and all the wise men of Babylon. He's just going to start over. He's going to find some new wise men who can tell him what his dream means because it really troubled him. So Daniel and his three friends, who were also of the wise men of Babylon, they're sought sought out to be killed, <coughs> to be killed by, by the king. So Daniel then goes to the king. Uh, with a request and he says give us time and uh, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to go and get the, get the dream and the interpretation so he does he and his three friends seek mercy before the Lord and they seek it concerning this mystery right? this is a very important phrase within apocalyptic they seek mercy to know concerning this mystery and then Daniel receives it in a vision He then goes and tells the the king the dream and the interpretation. It's not good news for the king because the king is part of the vision, he's the head of gold, and this whole image is going going to be crushed. But in the dream, there's this image made out of four different materials representing consecutive kingdoms, finally accumulating in the fifth kingdom that is set up in those days. It is the kingdom of God that is a stone that crushes the image in its feet, and becomes a mountain, and spreads throughout the whole earth in those days. That's the story. It's a very bizarre story. We get an interpretation within the story as well, but it, it um, it's a bit cryptic as well, but, we, we can get into what it means. It basically means that there's going to be these consecutive kingdoms, and then the fifth kingdom is going to be the kingdom of God that, that the Lord is going to set up in those days. And he's going to do it by the stone, which is going to crush the feet of the image and become a mountain and fill the whole earth. Right. We see in this story that there's a mystery, and it is revealed to one person. The dream consists of symbols that must be interpreted, and then an interpretation is given. Like our story in Mark, the interpretation involves the coming of the kingdom of God. At the end of a sequence of kingdoms, the kingdom of God will be set up over all the earth. Now, aside from that story in, in Daniel, and, and its, its uh, corollary here in Mark 4, this is exactly what is happening. The same thing that, that Daniel was talking about, where the kingdom of God is being set up and the stone is doing it, is actually coming about, and we'll see that in chapter 12. He's going to refer back to this, this story in Daniel. But, in the time, uh, but he, what he does here in chapter 4 is he tells a different parable in order to get at the same thing. And in doing so, he changes the, the sequencing just a bit. Whereas in Daniel, you have these four consecutive kingdoms starting with the head of gold, which is Nebuchadnezzar, and then going on through until the fifth, which becomes the kingdom of God. Here he speaks of simultaneous sowings of seed that are happening all at once. So he takes the, he takes the idea of the kingdom of God, which he is inaugurating, and then he, he uses a different type a, a different story within the same type uh, to illustrate how this is a- actually happening. It's a way of reinterpreting uh, the scriptures. That's what he's doing. Here in our current text, Mark 4 1 through 20, we have the parable of a sower, which should be seen as the head of the parables of the kingdom. It is the first major parable in Mark and the only one that includes an interpretation. It is a parable about fruit. You wouldn't think it's about fruit, especially if you read your ESV. Now, this is what I was talking about with the ESV. It's not just the ESV. But they will say grain, that, that these seeds yield a lot of grain. And maybe that's the idea, but, but the word that he uses there is fruit, karpos, fruit. And this one is about fruit. The reason this matters is because on the other end of Mark, there's another parable about fruit chapter 12. On the other side, we have a similar parable that's mirroring this parable. Announcing judgment on the, kingdom, uh, on the temple and announcing that a new temple will be built with Jesus himself being the chief stone. The chief stone that is, he's that stone that's cut out without hands. Beginning of chapter 12, Mark explicitly says again, and he began to speak to them in parables. Similar to Four, two, which says, and he taught them many things in parables. There's, a, there's a, a coupling together of these two major sequences on both ends of Mark, and it will pay to, to look at those more closely. In chapter 11, this is also following a, an episode of unbelief, where they come to him and they're, they're nagging him, and they, they question his authority to do what he's just done. He's basically cursed the temple. And he's, what, you know, what sign do you give us what kind of authority do you have and uh, he, he says was John the Baptist from God or men and they remain silent and then he doesn't give them an answer but then he goes to tell this parable about them and the parable is that they're going to be judged so it becomes more explicit there's a development but this parable is about the same thing God has come and he sent his people his, his servants to get fruit from the vineyard and they give him no fruit, right? The owner then comes and destroys the tenants and gives it to others. Look at that. In both parables, the goal of the sowing is fruit, and the goal of the sending to the vineyard in chapter 12 is to get fruit. In each each instance, the results are a bit different. Let's look at chapter 4. I'm gonna have to, I'll have to end a little bit early, and we'll come back to this next week. But we have three parts, as I mentioned, the parable, the rationale for the parables in general, uh, 10 through 12, and then the interpretation of the parable. Let's look at the parable uh, itself for just a moment. Verse, uh, verses uh, three and following. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, Scratch out grain, but fruit, it's karpas. And it's very important within the story. And other seeds fell into good soil, and they produced fruit, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is all the people in the narrative get the readers of Mark's gospel, so if you're if you're in first century Palestine and you're listening to Jesus, you don't get the rest of the story. This is all you get. And what do you do with this story? The sower is sowing seed, he's expecting the seed to produce fruit. He sows some beside the road, the birds eat it. He sows some on rocky land, the sun scorches it because it has no root. He sows some some among thorns which choke it and give no fruit, and finally, there's a good sowing, and this one yields fruit to varying degrees. Now, anyone hearing this parable ought to hear echoes of several key words and passages that come from Israel's long inscripturated history. Words like seed, word, growing and increasing, thorns, where do, we hear, where do we hear about the seed? All right, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. But in other places we hear about seed. Isaiah is full of, of these references to the Lord sowing seed, and he's going to sow Israel back in the land. Where do we hear about Thorns. Thistles, thorns, and thistles. Right when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, there's there's uh, there's talk here of, of of this or an allusion here to these thorns and thistles springing up and choking the seed. And then, lastly, the most important uh, the most important word that uh, we see here is the notion of fruit, fruitful. Where do we where do we hear these words about being fruitful? and multiplying and filling the earth. I suggest there's an intentional illusion here. And what he's saying by this is that there is a sowing now. And this sowing is bringing to a conclusion all of these references to the seed of Abraham and the bearing of fruit, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. We might say that this parable is about various responses to the preaching of the gospel. And this is how it is often preached. And that is in some way true. But the story that we have here includes these certain echoes of scripture that make it much richer and clearer. The parable takes on a depth that is otherwise lost and the gospel becomes something other than what Mark or Jesus intended. If we forget, if we we miss these allusions, that is, what Jesus said he was doing is gained almost in whole through the echoes of the words within the parables. What I mean is this. If you miss the echoes, you miss exactly what he is doing in using parables, but also in what is actually happening in the ministry that is being described here because this parable is about what is happening in the ministry of the Messiah. It is a ministry of sowing seed. And his claims are nothing short of astounding and arrogant if he is not who he says he is. He claims to be bringing about the blessing of Adam of creating a new people who will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He claims to be the seed of Abraham. Let's look briefly at the interpretation. I'll cut it it short, but uh, then we'll we'll look next week at other implications of the parable. A sower sows seed in different environments. We're never told who the sower is, but we can assume that it is God. The sower sows the word, which, is, which means that the seed is the word. This is a bit ambiguous. What is the word? Is it the word about the kingdom, or is it Jesus himself? It doesn't answer, but it invites us to pursue it. Perhaps it is both the word of the kingdom and Jesus himself, who is the word, being sown in order to bear fruit. We do have this strange saying in John, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is very sim- It's a very similar idea that we have here. There's a seed being sown, and it is going to yield fruit, and it's going to do it through the death of the Messiah. What else are we told? We're told about the various responses to his message. The seeds sown by the wayside represent those who hear the word, and upon hearing it, have it snatched away from their minds by the evil one. Jesus is saying that during this sowing, the evil one is blinding some. In verses 16 and 17, the seeds sown on stony ground are the superficial ones, the ones who in the stories are seeking the bread and the miracles, but really have no interest in following the Lord by taking up their cross. When tribulation and persecution arise, it says, they stumble. Though this is relating to the people who are hearing Jesus' word about the kingdom, we should not discount the possibility that we ourselves are tempted by such things. Are we sure that we'd be able to endure persecution for the kingdom of God, for Jesus' sake, were it to come to us? The story invites us to examine ourselves. 18 and 19, the seeds sown among thorns are those who hear the the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things choke the word and make it unfruitful. Again, echoes of Genesis 3. This is self-explanatory, but it should be noted that we should consider hard and daily our relationship to the world itself, to the cares of the world, to riches, and to other things. It's easy to be an idolater and worship the image of metals like Nebuchadnezzar. It's difficult to know how to navigate this world while not worshiping the things that each of us needs. Jesus' message, though, requires that we lay it all on the line and do it his way. The final sowing results in fruit-bearing. Verse 20, this group hears, accepts it, and bears fruit to varying degrees. Now, We could make a lot out of each of these types of seeds, but the point seems to be here. God is now sowing his word, his seed, the Messiah, and it is being met with differing degrees of success. I would like to suggest that the parable here is exploiting language on different levels to say that now, finally, Israel's long-awaited exile is coming to an end, and the kingdom of God is being inaugurated. The story invites us to analyze our response to this message of the kingdom. It's a radical message. It's a message that says, take up your cross and follow me. But it's one that the story asks of all of us. We'll come back next week and look at uh, some more implications of this, and then we'll move on into... Another couple of, of agricultural um, agricultural uh, parables as well, uh, and then we'll and then we'll move on to the last one the week after that. <coughs>